From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Some combination of your hosts are here anyway. We've got three of the four today. Eric Bradlow's here. Adi Weiner's here. And this is Cade Massey. Shane Jensen caught up in some airline difficulties. There may be some labor issues. It might be related to COVID. We don't know. We just know that Shane's had some real bad airline luck the last couple of days trying to get back from that riveting Pats-Texans game down in Houston. Sorry, we can't get the first-hand report on that, but we've got plenty else to talk about. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. Hope you're well. We're rolling into Q1. Q1, as we have established for the last year and a half, is the time to talk about COVID. Make sense of the epidemic. We are, how many? We're like 17 months. We're like, I'm sorry, 19 months or so into it, almost exactly. We're still talking about it. Why don't we begin, especially since we haven't been together much in the last month, why don't we begin by characterizing the pandemic? Where are we in the pandemic? How, how would you describe the current state of affairs in the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, let me, let me just start with the following, then I'd love to get Adi's reaction to it. So it's almost like, you know, since we're an analytics show, if one was going to create a scorecard on, on COVID, what would be on the scorecard? Obviously, the number of deaths per day would be on the scorecard. It's an unfortunate number. That number last time I saw is still averaging about 1,650 a day. So that's yeah. still a very, very high number. The number of cases per day, it's now down under 100,000, but it's still in the high 90s. So they're hoping to get that number under 10,000. So that's another scorecard metric we could look at. The positivity rate is another metric. Remember, at one point, they were hoping it would be under 5%. Well, it's over 5% in pretty much every region of the country now. And so to me, um, things are trending in a better direction than they were. Um, my only question is, when are we going to be at a place where things head down and stay down? And, you know, that that's my major concern, because we thought it was in June or July of this year. Then the Delta variant hit between the 57 percent of the population. This would also be on our scorecard. Fifty seven percent of our of the population is vaccinated. Over 70 percent of people, 18 plus, have gotten at least one shot between the combination of that. And the people that have gotten COVID, you've got to think we're getting closer and closer to the point where unless there's a vaccine resistant version that comes up, we've got to be getting to a place where whatever peaks there will be in the future will have to be localized and not as steep. That's my hope. So I think it's a lovely uh, characterization of both what we know and what we don't know. And one of the most important outstanding questions, I think, in support of the possibility that we're getting close is the lack of rise that we expected kind of rolling into the school year. As things moved more indoors and we started convening groups of people again, we thought we'd see this rise. It was well predicted in the fall of 2020 and it, and it came to be. Now, we could just say, look, this is something, our, I know I'm, I'm, I'm shilling for Leonard all the time, but he, <laughs> he has been good in his coverage. And one of the things he said in the last couple of weeks was been, the maybe the overarching lesson is that we never know as much as we think we know about this dang thing. And so you might say, look, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean anything, Kate. It just means we were bad predictors. But you might also say, no, Bradlow's right. 
if if we weren't building up some kind of it's not herd immunity, but we've got enough people with exposure that we're not as vulnerable as we used to be. If that weren't the case, surely we would have seen a rise as we rolled into September, and we haven't. This has been finally a decline. Adi. Okay, well, I'll just reflect. Last year, things didn't really bubble up until mid-October. Um, so let's just, I'm, I don't want to be the pessimist. Far, it is mid-October. It is mid-October. So, so, so it, yeah, so now is right around the time. When you're the data last. guy, Adi, that's not being pessimistic. You're just informing us about the data. Yeah. Second thing is, I love Leonard's article. I think I've been I've been I've been sort of hitting those points kind of consistently throughout, in the sense that we just don't know. It's hard to predict. But he may, he was further than that. He's basically said, "Stop trying to tell yourself morality plays about why this is happening and that's happening because that's human nature." But it isn't science. Um, so this community has a breakout because they behaved this way, and this group didn't because they behaved that way, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is, we just don't get it. Um, and there's and, and it's just it's very hard to make sense out of it. I went to a wedding on uh, Sunday. It was a wonderful wedding. Um, there were hundreds and hundreds of people. They they insisted on testing everyone with a rapid test. They had a whole nursing contingent there. You had to go into the room downtown at Logan Square. Um, and I, I we had an over under on how many positive tests there would be among the at least. Okay, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is fascinating and fantastic. So mm-hmm. one, it's going to be an indoor. We've all been to some. Well, not all of us. Yep. I know you've been to a wedding before in the last year and happened. It was an outdoor wedding. Yes, it was um, outdoor. This was indoor or outdoor? Oh, fully indoor, not a drop fully, fully of indoor. So, so they're going to be at serious for the testing. So lovely. Let's, I just want to understand it better because we've had trouble getting testing here in the States. We can't just run down to CVS and pick up a rapid test. You might find one online. It's going to cost you like a hundred bucks or something, as opposed to they're giving them away in the in Europe. So you can't just do the, the rapid testing. They set up their own little booth and their own medical facility to do that. Oh, yes. So you had to wait. You had to, you had okay. to get so tested. Way, I'll tell you how they did it. The, the way they did it was they opened the wedding. Officially started at four thirty with the pre pre cocktail hour. So they invited you to come anywhere between twelve and four fifteen, um, and then they had um, the Eagles game on a big screen in a big lounge. Wow, this is inspired. And wow. they had uh, drinks. The bars were open and and pretzels. Beautiful. Um, so people could come as early as they like and hang out. Um, I got there fairly early. I didn't have to wait at all. A lot of people had come way before me. I figured okay. that people would come really early because it would be too crowded and I can come late. Yeah, right. Beat the rush. <laughs> so, okay, now let's get to your question. Eric, what are you going to guess for the percent positive here? So do you want percent or raw numbers, Adi? You've got how many? Uh, you can go raw numbers. You can give me percent, whatever. And what's the, what was the number of tests that were done? Like 300? Or at least 500. 500. Yeah. I'm going to guess the number of positives was somewhere between five to eight percent. So twenty-five. Okay, go ahead. So twenty-five to forty. No, I was just converting it to the number. Why, but why? And I want to. I want a chance to chime in here as well. Oh, by the way, just to throw in, that there were a lot of guests. But there weren't five hundred guests. They they test everybody, all the staff, everybody um, who was there, um, who was connected, who had to be in the room. So it wasn't just the wasn't just the guests. But there was about 500 people. Well, five, actually, five, so, 5 to 8% here. Well, so actually, let me revise why I'm going to revise the number downward. So 5 to 8% would be my guess of the positivity rate of people that go in to get tested. And yeah. so that's a self-selected population. And so this number's got to be, that would be an upper bound. So I'm going to guess it has to be, that would be my highest estimate that it's somewhere between 25 and 40 people. So I'm going to guess 5 to 7 people. That's my okay, guess, so 1%. Th- th- 
I was going to ask Scotty, or maybe it was you who said it earlier about the about the positivity rate, like where that number comes from. That's not from random sampling. That's from people. No, no, that's what I just said. So I'm now adjusting for the selection bias that comes with people who are probably symptomatic or have or getting tested for a purpose. Okay, so I don't I don't know if that's true. I don't know how much self selection is in on that stuff. Um, You know, we might we have to get tested around campus, for example. And I'm also wondering how much selection you might get at the wedding. Aren't you more likely to avoid the wedding if you're worried about the positive test? Yeah, that's another ah, form of selection. Point. In fact, people were told, were told if they're concerned, if they're traveling, go get, do a rapid test at home first. Make sure that you're going to- Oh, well, you didn't say that, but okay. Oh, no, I mean, let yeah. me let Kate give his number. I'm going to stick by my number. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go lower. I'm going to, I'm going to go three and a half percent. Okay, so I actually went with three people as my, that was my pre-guess. Oh, geez. Um, and Why so low? Well, okay. Uh, and my, my answer <laughs> has to do with this, is that I think that we are experiencing a very, very heterogeneous homogeneity. In other words, there are communities oh, where we there's no people. COVID. And this is a certain... Um, upper, Eric, we missed it. We thought we were talking about the nationally representative sample. This no, is this is upper, upper classy community um, in Lower Marion, um, Balakinwood area. Oh and my, my suspicion, Eric, is we suck. What the heck? Yeah. So it turns out the answer ended up being zero, and that's what oh. I found very, very interesting. And I was shocked when when I heard that because I thought it, I thought three was a decent number, not three percent, three in total. And one of the reasons why I thought it was a decent number was. I knew enough people who had had COVID like re- within a month earlier. There were some kids. Um, uh, well, your kids, your son, and asymptomatic vaccinated people. Right. People who were also people who had who, one particular um, uh, young man who was there, friends with my daughter. He had it three weeks ago, a symptomatic case, um, vaccinated. And the doctor had told him, you're going to potentially test positive for several weeks even though you're completely, um, you're not infectious and you're, you're completely better. So he's like, I saw him, he had come down from Brooklyn for the wedding and he said, I might not be able to go, but what the hell. Um, and so everybody turned out next. So the other pieces that I throw out is that in a lot of, so Penn, for example, we're seeing very, very low positivity. Very low. Among our random sampling or, or the mandatory testing, like one, maybe one tenth of 1%. Um, so just by that mathematics, if you do one tenth of one okay. percent. So let me ask you, Kate. So let me ask you a question. You said, you, you, let me, let's turn this into a good statistics question, which is, you said we suck and we suck. I suck worse than you suck. That's fine. Um, where did we go wrong? Were we wrong in the base rate? Were we wrong in the self-selection mechanism? Were we wrong in that people may have gotten tested before? And were we wrong in all of those things? We were wrong in our homogeneity assumption. That's right. We've been preaching this for a year and a half, and we got it wrong, Eric. We didn't listen to our own preaching. Heterogeneity, heterogeneity, heterogeneity. Well, I like Adi's description. I forget, heterogeneous homogeneity, which is that there's clusters of people where the rates are extraordinarily low. And there are clusters of people where our guests would be, you know, I'm not going to name necessarily a part of the country, but that number of five to 7% might be a very good guess in certain parts of the country and not others. And in certain, I'll call it, um, maybe it's, if you want to use political divide, racial divide, socioeconomic divide, um, all of those things. Good. So, Adi, that was a big digression. You were you were on the way to kind of characterizing the state. Yeah. The so the reason I guess I want to the reason I brought it up is because it's a heterogeneous home heterogeneous homogeneity here at Penn. I feel like I come to class every day. Um, everybody's wearing masks, as am I. 
yet there doesn't seem the students occasionally do report that that one of the students tur turned positive and they're and they're staying home. There's red paths we call it here. Um, so they're little are little flare ups, but they certainly don't seem to percolate widely and they 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 dissipate. They don't they don't spread. They dissipate. So here we are at Penn, and we're basically functioning as normal. I asked the students what their expectations are when they're not in classrooms and outdoors. No one wears masks. But even indoors, where I think they're required to wear masks in public settings, they really don't wear them. And things are proceeding. And, and, and of course, you know, Eric's son is at Penn, and there are lots of students that he would be aware of. We feel, I feel like I'm in, in a not normal, but close to it environment. And so I think that those numbers that Eric gave reflect the, somehow the status of the country as a whole, but doesn't reflect what a lot of heterogeneity and homogeneous pockets are, are, are feeling. And, uh, and it's starting to remind me a little bit like, um, when I went to California in June and I was in Marin, which is no one even knew anyone who had COVID. In contrast to my experience out here, where half my family had COVID, I know lots of COVID everywhere. But right now, but those COVID cases have not materialized to anything other than a couple of days of uh, being out. In most cases, well, it's asymptomatic. Let me ask you a question, Adi. Do you think it's very plausible, let's say among our student population, that there could be, and maybe this is an imprecise term, but could there be localized herd immunity? Which means at this point, you know, 99% of these people probably have been, plus have been vaccinated. Yes, and so that's who they interact with. Yep. And so I think in a highly vaccinated community, I think probably even more recently vaccinated. I think one thing that I'm seeing, I've been tracking, I'm back to tracking the Israeli data on a daily basis. They went through a massive booster, third shot for their population within the last couple months. And immediately you saw a complete flip of the numbers from the beginning it was it was almost embarrassing so many it was almost one-to-one -one, the ratio of infections among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated there didn't seem to be uh, there almost seemed to be a, a relevant protection offered by vaccination to getting an infection massive in protection and getting severe illness there's no doubt about that but in terms of active infection there didn't seem to be any value there but, but hold on you're saying one-to-one -one in percentage or one-to-one -one in absolute one-to-one -to -one in count but if you adjust by the base rates it was about a 30 or 40 percent effective rate uh, among the vaccinated to preventing you from getting an infection. Very small. As I said early, early, much bigger protection up to 95, even 98 percent, depending on your age group in terms of severe illness and death. But you're saying without the you're saying without the booster, without the booster. Now right. they've done the boosters and the boosters have had a chance to do do its sit, you know, work its magic. Then it's back to there's almost zero cases among <laughs> the vaccinated coming out again. In other words, our antibodies levels, at least probably in our mucosa or our, our, our in the frontline antibodies dissipated. We right. lost the ability to protect against infection once the vaccination had worn off and that the booster shot ramped it up again. Um, one, one of my virologist friends said, uh, you probably were too early to get the booster in the sense that if there's another variant that comes along, that's probably when you want to get it. Um, so you're really ready for that. Um, or another wave of a flare-up. But let I me ask you a question, Adi. Why? So I know one of our guests. Remember, remind me of the gentleman at Penn that overcame some illness. Uh, David Fagenbaum. Yes. David Fagenbaum. Thank you. Um, he had that theory. Remember that maybe we have a lifetime amount of mRNA that we can get. Or he's he doesn't not saying that's true. He's saying it's possible. Why do you what? Why should I be worried if another variant comes around and they come up with a booster? Can I get that one, too? And, you know, if there's another flare up four months from now, can't I get a fourth shot or, you know, so I haven't seen any evidence yet 
that I'm not going to be able to repeatedly get shots. So I'm not sure what the, I'm not saying he's wrong. And he didn't say he was right either. I'm not sure. What? (laughs) It wasn't him who said that. Yeah. Oh, about the MRA a lifetime. The problem is we don't just know much about it, but I don't like to invent uh, fabulous stories about things just because they're, they're possible. I'm much more concerned about what's plausible. I mean, but just to throw out a possibility, a lot of people do get, I didn't get it, but a lot of people do get sick after getting a, a vaccine or an MRA vaccine, but other vaccines, um, sometimes quite not dangerously, but come, sometimes quite, you know, disadvantagedly. Um, well, I don't want to continually take a shot every six months that has a potential to knock me out for two days. Um, that seems like a lot. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's a good transition to, you know, something I brought up briefly. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I want, I want one second. Before we move, I want to understand more how definitively we understand the decay in the effectiveness of the original shots. Because you're stating more factually than I've heard stated that it declines and it declines precipitously after, I don't know, what, what's the average time? These guys for are preventing vaccine for, for, for preventing getting the illness, not for hospitalization and death. That's yeah, yeah. the number that stayed in the 90s. Right. And that's presumably the most important thing. But so, but even just this decay and acquiring it. I, I want to make it clear that I don't know the answer to that. All I'm saying is that the Israeli data indicated that most of their population was vaccinated by February, way earlier than the United States, many by January. But my daughter who lived there, she was in the, you know, the, un, the under 20 group, say were the last group to get vaccinated. She was vaccinated before me in, in end of January. So yeah. by the time June and July ran around that when the, the Delta variant was running through June, July and August, a lot of their population was not had had already been five, six months. It passed. They seem to have little protection against infection. I'm just throwing that out. I don't know what the rate, the decay curve. One of the observations made to me by a biologist said that one of the problems with the mRNA, and and they'll potentially make a different version of it, is that it goes in your arm, which is a bloodstream protection, and that the immunoglobulins that might exist in your in your respiratory tracts, your nose um, in particular, don't have much concentration of, of um of antibodies and those dissipate probably quite rapidly. Mm. And that potentially one of the reasons why we got sick, but not deathly sick, not even close to deathly sick, is that to transition from a very bad um, coronavirus, literally a cold, to a death-threatening secondary disease requires infestation in the lungs. We have plenty of antibodies to that. So one antibody doesn't go away at all, it seems, and one antibody coverage in the front line goes away pretty rapidly. So there, maybe there'll be mists that are come out. I know they have a flu um, and we'll have all kinds of d- different kind of delivery systems that could potentially- They are working actually, Adi, right now on a spray mm-hmm. um, that will affect the front line. And we know, of course, about the Merck pill, which just has been, they've asked for FDA approval for emergency youth authorization. They're saying once you are symptomatic, 50% reduction, which is quite remarkable for a pill. And so, um, you know, I think there's I, I think there's going to be an increase. And you even said, Adi, I think, you know, you don't want to go in for a shot necessarily every four to six months. I think we're going to okay. get therapeutic options for home use that are going to be very effective very soon. What do you think are the prospects for what the U.S. looks like in early 2022? And let me make it very concrete for you. We have a tradition on the show of going out to the Super Bowl and doing a Super Bowl show on the Thursday before. There's a media row. It's a lot of fun. It's a chance for us to be together. It's a chance to see some people in the field. 
we didn't do it last year, despite it being Tampa. Eric had looked forward to it for 12 months and then wasn't able to for go. For 12 months? For, since the 2002 Super Bowl? What are you talking about for 12 months? Well, since it was announced. Since I it, know, been, I know. I'm joking. More so once Brady got traded down there. But you got robbed of that in 2021. We're, we're you know, scheduled to go. Los Angeles, January, February, whatever it is, 2022. What do you think the chances are that we go? We're going to go if we can be there in kind of normal times. I doubt we go if it's still pandemic time in terms of behavior. What do you think? I, I think, I think our, the, our decision to go will depend on our willingness to go. Um, I think uh, there will be a, a radio row like there has been. There'll be many people willing to talk to us. Flights will be happening. The Super Bowl will pre- be proceeding as normal. Um, I think it's L.A. L.A. in uh, February is uh, nice and warmish. I don't know if that's the right word for it. Um, things will be outdoors when needed to be predominantly. I, I think that the opportunity to go will be there um, and that we'll have to decide on essentially other factors. Well, I think also I think one thing almost certain to be true, because they pretty much have it right now in L.A., is there'll be a vaccine requirement. So every assuming that Radio Row, they continue to have it indoors, which for sound reasons, they probably will. Um, I think there could very well be a vaccine requirement for people to enter uh, Radio Row. And that'll be a very interesting negotiation and discussion with the different players associations, et cetera. But that's my belief. Because <laughs> I think LA's mandating it now for indoor indoor thing. I mean, the LA, the mayor of LA might just say, we're not having a super spreader event here and we're going to require it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it might be that testing, it should be that more testing, these quick tests are going to be available by late 2021, early 22. Well, the US just announced what? I mean, didn't the Biden administration just announce a $1 billion investment in rapid home tests so that they're going to, you know, start delivering them to everybody. And that would be nice. Rapid home I mean, tests I, would help. I have to it, say that's would, my biggest be- disappointment in our tech. I mean, we went so, we did so great with the vaccine and there's just no way to underplay how well we did with the vaccine. And I take no credit for it. I didn't have anything to do with it, but the, the, the those who did it succeeded a home run 480 feet. I mean, yeah. about as good yeah. as it gets. Yeah. yeah. Where we failed is in the testing early on. There were so many indications that they had great technology to make cheap, rapid, yeah, reliable enough testing that you could take one every day when you woke up in the morning and it'd be 10 to 15 cents each. Nothing like that was ever produced. And I, I don't know the answer to why that never came to be. Probably because not enough people felt enough money could be made on it. And so we didn't make them. Well, and some policy decisions were made. Um, and whether it was regulatory or executive, there were some policy decisions made. Somebody knows the answer to that, but it wasn't pushed. And by the time that was around, I mean, we were probably well into the politicalization of this whole thing and testing might've fallen into, you know, mask for all I know. But like right now, the immediate ramifications are, you know, for any personal gathering, you want to sit, you want to have your family over or friends gather inside. It'd be nice to do it inside without masks. Everybody be a lot more comfortable or confident if we were able to test and just take the test. And we know not only are you vaccinated, there's not been a breakthrough because you're you're negative today. It would make a big difference. Big difference. The wedding was Our, spectacular, by the way. It was back to the normal. Because what was that? Oh, the wedding. wedding? Yeah. yeah, it was it was completely normal. Um, well, when we get these little moments, maybe it's going to help us appreciate them more because they are uh, have been so rare for the last couple of years. Guys, why don't we wrap the COVID conversation there? We've still got three quarters to go. We've got three quarters of sports analytics to talk about. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. You've got three of the four co-hosts in here. Eric, Adi, Cade. Shane is out doing Shane things. You guys can jump in here and join us. We wish you would. Give us a ring on Twitter or by email. Twitter is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. Love hearing from you. We follow all our guests. Tweet periodically about sports analytics and other sports things. And uh, love hearing from you. Also, uh, email us. We have a mailbag now, a mailbag of sorts. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. We read everything you send us, and we're delighted to. And we get as much of it on the air as possible. Send us your questions, your ideas, your suggestions, your article links. Just had an email with some interesting article links from Don Kelbeck. Don, appreciate the appreciate the education on some of these things. Don's a professional basketball coach. Said he started out listening to us for the sports and ends up listening to us for COVID. So at least a few folks are looking and enjoying that first quarter. Shane, Adi, I mean Shane, Eric, Adi. We've got a few interesting sports bouncing around these days. It is moving into kind of mid-season on the NFL and college football front. Adi, are you, is football continuing to grow for you? I know the Jets aren't helping very much, but, I mean, are you watching much? Am I ever going to get you into the college game? Do you appreciate the, the pageantry and explosiveness of it? So I'd love to watch the college game more. It doesn't work so great with my my schedule this at the Sabbath on Saturday. Oh gosh, it hurts, um, which is always tough. Um, but I did go. I used to go to the games when I was in college and enjoy them immensely. Although I will confess that I probably would sit and talk math with my friends in the stands more than watch the games. I was that kind of nerd uh, there for the for the experience. Past tense. Um, past tense. You past, tense. Um, and past tense, of course. Um, but I do like to watch the college game when it kind of runs around because the the it's such a different game than the NFL. There seems to be just so much more action. Things just move so much faster. Um, it's wide open in a way that the NFL isn't. Um, but I have been watching a lot of NFL. One of the reasons why NFL is attractive and it, because you can really see analytics on the field and oh, yeah. starting to, to, to take root and it's making the game more exciting. Like, so what do you mean? What, what do you, what are you thinking about when you say that? In particular, you know, all these decisions to go for it at places where they never used to go for it with much frequency before you're seeing teams doing that much more. It's very exciting, right? Mm-hmm. So these, these two point conversions, these uh, shying away from field goals, um, going for going when you're in deep in your own territory and it's, and it's fourth and two or fourth and three, even going for it on fourth down when it's it, when it, you're, you're on the 25 yard line on fourth and one. Um, I'm starting, and, and that's kind of fun. And one of the things that, that I, we talked about um, uh, you know, you, Kate and I, when we did this program with the, the, the alumni, a lot of the things that, that baseball has done as learned lessons from analytics have made the game dull <laughs> and it's, that's not good. Right. So none of this sort of strategic bunting and base runner movements um, have, and, and this obsession with hitting home runs, walking and, and this decision to just not care about striking out, which is something that the analytics have taught, taught everyone so kind of carefully has made the game far less interesting than it would be, uh, than it would ordinarily have been when contrast football analytics seems to make it more exciting. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, analytics are neutral about all of this and the teams, frankly, the teams are neutral about this. They're pursuing it out of self-interest. It just happens to be that it makes it more exciting on the football side. You mentioned the fourth down thing. So Staley, the chargers head coach gave a, a master's class in fourth down aggressiveness in the game against the Browns. I think, um, um, 
we, Barnwell wrote up an, a nice piece on his weekly review of what happened. He talked about four decisions, all super aggressive relative to historical inclinations, and they converted all of them. And it led to, it helped, it facilitated this comeback. Now, look, we, we tend to praise coaches for decisions when they work out, this outcome bias, but we know as a community that we think that quarter, coaches tend to be too conservative about this. So Chargers go out and they're super aggressive. The, did, this was the Chargers against the Browns, no less, which made it all. Were the they super aggressive once they were down or they were super aggressive throughout the game? Like, what was the context? They, they were down. They were trying to come back. All like right. So were, that's obviously that's, a little different. But, but Eric, I mean, they were also – go back and look at Barnwell's write-up. You're talking about situations where, you know, it's like fourth and five on your own 25 kind of thing. And it's third quarter as opposed to fourth quarter. So they weren't the classic desperation times when you might see much more aggressive, but it's really just kind of desperation driving it. This was – this is exactly what you want. You want people to recognize, actually – I'm sufficiently far behind that I have to dial up the aggressiveness now if I hope to get it. And you're not always going to hit it. And he happened to hit, but it was a pattern. It was enough of a pattern to believe there was a philosophy there. And frankly, it's just nice to see like a new front open on this thing. You've got the chargers out there doing some things. Um, So it's just one more indication that this is, that this is um, there's, there's been some big change. The Chargers are fun to pull for for lots of reasons. It's kind of fun to pull against the Browns also. You know, I've got multiple reasons there, but you've got, a, you've got an interesting game coming up. You've got Kyler Murray going to Cleveland this coming weekend to play Baker Mayfield. These are two Heisman Trophy winners out of Oklahoma back-to-back, these quarterbacks. And it's also one of the most exciting kind of new teams in the league with the Cardinals that's, I mean, we don't need to jump too quickly to next week's game, but when thinking about the Browns, I think they've got an interesting back-to-back with the Chargers and now the Cardinals. What am, I right your that, eyes? am I right that Cleveland is favored in that game? Yeah, I think the world is not completely convinced on the, 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 the Cardinals yet. We need to see a little bit more of them. Let me see. I've got a line here somewhere. Give me a quick second. I think yeah. it's in our rundown. If, I've, if I'm looking at it right, it's like Cleveland, like, Minus three, basically neutral on a home field. That's right. Neutral on a neutral. I mean, even on a neutral field. I got him two and a half. Um, and Cleveland uh, favored by two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so and, that's that's even on a neutral field. That's a little surprising to me, given how well Arizona. You know, Cleveland's played well. Uh, played well also. Well, so Massey Peabody has Arizona about seventh. Cleveland about ninth. You got to give, you know, priors. Arizona, I think it's fair to say, is outperforming expectations so far. And so it's going to take a little while for those data to, to overwhelm the, the priors. But we do think that that's not quite, that's too much of a, that's, it's not, a, it's, it's, there's an edge there for the Cardinals. We'd make it more like half a point or so. And it's sitting there at two and a half. So there's a little bit of an edge there. By the way, Eric, you mentioned that two and a half implies neutral on a, on a, it means a push on a neutral field. You know, I was just having this conversation with Rufus. It seems that home field advantage is really diminished compared to what it used to be. It's almost been zero the last couple of years. Now, some of that is COVID, but in general, people believe that it's gone down. Audi has run his numbers and shown that there's been this consistent trend down. Rufus said, Rufus has got a super like nuanced version. Depends on how far you have to travel, north, south, time of year, all that kind of stuff. Division rivals. But in general, Rufus is saying he's going with like, 0.7 of the historical effect. So if you used to think it was a two and a half point advantage, 
it's more like one and a half or 1.7 or something like that. So if you're, if you're running your models, you might think about what you're putting in there as home field advantage. We're, we're now just as kind of a global number, I would drop in something like that. Just a quick question. Um, how important is it? Let's say that's a point difference or point some, just to give our listeners, I don't know the answer, but you might obviously because of Massey Peabody. If Cleveland, let's say is a three point favorite or two and a half point favorite, let's say that makes them, I'm making this up 55, 45. If they're a one and a half point favorite instead, does it make them 52, 48? Like what is the, like how much is this one to 0.7 home field advantage? If it's worth 0.75 or a point, how much is that changing the probability? Well, this is, I always go to Audi for my yeah, I have the points from standard deviation. All right. So what is it, Audi? It's, uh, okay. So if you're anywhere near the, the 50% mark, and I mean, maybe 10 to 90, mm-hmm. the, the probit model, which is our fancy way of saying the inverse normal distribution yep. is excellent from turning a Z-score into a probability. So it's an area under the normal curve up to the Z-score. If you use the, if, so basically what we ask for is what's the, what's the prediction accuracy error? And it's about 11 and a half to 12. So if you actually knew the quality of the team, and that's matters because we know the two teams that are playing, if we don't know the quality of the teams, the, and this is actually shocking, the standard deviation is around 12 and a half points. So if just two random teams, they play each other, the standard deviation and the point differential will be about 12 and a half. If you knew the two teams and you get to, um, and then you try to, uh, then you make a forecast and then you make your differential from your forecast. So if it's a very good team, you might say that there is a seven point difference, make, make that the baseline. Then it only drops to shockingly around 11, which is a testimonial to our holy inability to predict the winner of a football game when it's close. So is um, one point, should I interpret a one point, let's call it so it's, it's um, about, a tenth of a standard deviation? It's about a tenth of a standard deviation. And, what, and how much is that worth in the middle of the distribution? Let me think of, let me see if I can estimate that. Going one standard deviation out, one standard deviation out has 18% of the probability because it's 68% up to about one standard deviation. So, or no, it's 34% on yeah. their side. So it's probably yeah. about 3%, right, Adi? About 3%. About 3%. About a, a, I mean, it's, it's, that's the fattest part of the distribution. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's, it comes to about two and a half to 3% is about what, what one, one solid one point, which is well less than 1%. I mean, well less than 10 than 0.1 of a standard deviation. So it's about 52%, not much of an advantage. It's hard to, I mean, yeah, so that's about it. Guys, I want, to, I want to stay with exactly this. Shockingly, I wanted to talk about this today in a slightly different form. I, I watched the score of that Pats-Texans game on Sunday, and we knew our buddy Shane was there. And it's just, you know, it's shocking to me. I know the Pats aren't what the Pats used to be, but we expect the Pats to go down and take care of business against the consensus worst team in the league. And I can tell you, I mean, Houston just keeps on. There's always some team that kind of pulls that left tail further out, and Houston's that team this year. It's It's – it's just the nature of the NFL. And I think it, we forget it every year. You have to learn it in life and then you forget it. This thing about on any given Sunday. And so I want to make that any given Sunday a little bit more precise. And also I think it's a way we can differentiate sports. If you consider the, the spread and the quality of teams, y'all stay with me here for a second. I'm giving you, I'm about to give you a math problem again, the spread and the quality of the teams and then the standard deviation in what happens in a given game. Those two yeah. things tell you something about how often you see upsets and how likely it is that guys in the tails of the distribution can beat average teams and vice versa. 
So if you got a sport where there's a big spread of teams, it doesn't matter if there's a lot of standard deviation, you're not going to see as much upsets. But if you've got a sport with kind of a moderate spread of teams and a pretty high standard deviation in expected score differential, then you've got a lot of teams just be upsets all the time. They're not as surprising as you would expect them to be. So let's can, are y'all with me on this at all? I, I'm with you so far. I know the Patriots were roughly a seven-point favorite against the Texans. Adi just gave us a data point that uh, the standard deviation of the score is about 11 or 12 points. So that already tells me something, but keep going. Well, this is kind of – so let's just make that – let's just – let's use that example. So a seven-point favorite should win what percentage of the time, given the math we just talked through? Seven-point favorite should win approximately 62% of the time, I would guess, something like that, 60%. Okay. So even that, I think – I think it's a little higher than that. It's not higher than that? Seven-point, maybe 65, 64. I mean, I mean, let me, I'll bring up a normal distribution calculator. A little bit less than two-thirds, but you're already talking seven-point is a fairly big dis- – fairly big – advantage if you move from the middle right now mid-season these distributions become you know broader we get more sure about the differences later in the season we learn more about the teams right now the bottom team in the league the second worst is or the jets and we have them like minus six and a half against an average team on a neutral field so that seven points covers you from the middle of the distribution near the bottom now if you go to the texans you've got to add a few more points Going the other direction, same thing. Tampa Bay just crested plus seven. They're the first team this year for us to crest point seven. I mean, seven points. So Tampa, seven-point favorite against uh, the average team in the league on neutral field. So you go from the midpoint of the distribution to Tampa, and you get that seven-point difference, and you're still at that kind of two-thirds likely it's about 70% according to the normal distribution. Right? Yeah, that's what I, I would have guessed, 70-30. But that, so what you're saying, Kate, is something important. If roughly the best team in the league plays an average team, they have a 70% chance of winning. If an average team plays the worst team in the league, they have about a 70% chance yeah. of winning. Yeah. It's then, not as high as people think. I mean, and, and if you had that kind of rule of thumb, then you – and that's right now. You know, later in the season, we'll be more sure and we'll be more confident in these numbers. But you could compare sports as well. What do you think that no, those numbers are for NBA? or for MLB? The problem with the NBA and the MLB is that there's a lot of games. And so, you know, who's playing who? How much does the game matter? You know, if, if you ask me if both teams were playing at full strength in a, meaning, in a semi-meaningful game, um, I would say that it's much higher in the NBA. Yeah, I would, I would have thought so as well. Um, but, and then it's probably lower in baseball because of just how much, high, how much higher the uncertainty is. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I think what you're pointing out, though, is an interesting phenomenon, which is if you ever see an NFL line that's something like, I don't know, plus 400 or something, you might think about grabbing that line no matter who's playing who. Because, you know, in some sense, that's being priced at an 80-20 rule. And maybe if the Buccaneers played the, uh, you know, the Jets right now, it should be 90-10, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of people that might say, I don't know, I'll place a little money on a 9-to-1 odds between right. two teams on any given Sunday. Right, right. Well, let's. Uh, thanks for indulging that a little bit. Um, I think it'd be a, an interesting little heuristic to take across different sports, and it's a, not a bad reminder. Eric's telling us basically use it as a reminder as you process these spreads. I mean, you just see you shouldn't be as surprised by some of these upsets. I still remain shocked that the Pats had that much trouble with the Texans, but I guess – 
that happens. Let's talk about games this coming weekend. It looks to me like a pretty lame slate on the college front, which is super disappointing. While maybe, uh, maybe especially interesting, a little bit more interesting on the NFL front. Let's run through some games real quick. I, and Adi, you're finally going to get some NFL watching. I think Eric, I'm curious what's got you. What's got you fired up? Are you at all interested in the Bucks coming into Philadelphia? Do the Eagles have a chance there? The line is seven. Talk about seven-point lines. There's a seven-point line for you. Well, obviously, I'm going to the game. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, Yeah, I think the Eagles have a chance. I think the Eagles have a chance because they have a good defense. And, um, you know, the the formula for beating Tom Brady is not easy, but it's simple. Um, You can't – you have to get – push from your front defensive line. And that's the strongest part of the Eagles team is their four defensive linemen. So if that foursome can do be like a wrecking crew and do some damage to the Eagles, who to the box, whose offensive line is not that great at the moment, that's where the game can be won for the Eagles. They could win it on the, their defensive line against the Eagles offensive line. No, I, but I think Brady's, I mean, Brady just threw for 440 yards, five touchdowns and no picks against not a bad Miami Dolphin defense, by the way. Let me comment. Um, I, no, I don't think the Eagles are going to win this game. Even if a lot of people are going to say, well, they just went down to Carolina and beat them. Who ever said Carolina is any good? So, Eric, I've, I've been impressed with Tampa. I kind of wanted to short the, the narrative coming into the season, but they keep on performing. They keep on sneaking up our rankings. They've been a solid number one for a while. If you had to bet this, you're forced to bet it. Tampa minus seven. Which way you go? I would take Tampa minus seven if I had to bet it. But I would stay away from it because, you know, there have been so many games recently where seven points, the, the, the team is just not covering that many points. I would have thought Baltimore would have won by more than seven points last night against uh, uh, early in the fourth quarter. You wouldn't have. So amazing Monday night football, amazing comeback. Lamar Jackson, he, he accounted for something like 500 plus of the 500. Yeah. But you want to talk about Jesus. I mean, Blankenship. I mean, the kicker for the Colts, he misses an extra point. He has a field goal blocked. Then he has a 40 yard field goal or something with like two minutes, three minutes left to put the game into two scores and he misses them all. And then he misses one at the end of regulation to end the game. I mean, Come on. I mean, this is just – this Definitely is where the spe- – got to win in all the phases. The special teams cost the Colts that game. Well, and that, I felt re- the, yeah. block, the block field goal in particular was just unbelievable. That they, they, and that would have ended the game. Ended the game. Effectively. And to, blocks just aren't that common. And so when they, when they happen in moments like that – I mean, I don't know I, – I wasn't watching it close enough to know whether Blankenship's kick was responsible or whether it was a breakdown in the protection. Well, let me ask you a question, Adi. You brought up going forward on fourth down. So, Adi – you probably were. I was watching the game last night. Here's an interesting situation. So the Colts, it's tied. Let's say it's 25 all, I think, at the time. It's 25 this all. Is later. This is the next Late game. At the end of the game, there's 12 seconds left. The Colts have the ball fourth and 11. They can kick a 48-yard field goal to win the game. Or 50, sorry, it's a 50-yard no, field goal. 47. 47 to win the game. No, no, that's the one he ended up kicking. I'm talking about the play before, Adi, where it was fourth and 11 with 12 seconds left. And rather than trying to kick a 54 or 55-yard field goal or whatever to win the game, they had no faith in their kicker. They went for it on fourth and 11 to give him a closer field goal kick than the one he had. I was shocked that they didn't try the 53 or 54-yard field goal to win the game. The rough probabilities are about 
15% of making a fourth and 11? I mean, what's the typical? Okay, you know? so now I've got to make the fourth and 11, and then yeah. I've got to make the 40-something yard field goal still, comparing that to just kicking the 50-some-odd yard field goal. I was yeah. just surprised they went is for it. Is if they thought their field goal has just no chance? I mean, 54 Correct. is not undoable. It's actually quite doable for most Well, teams. no, 50 is well below 50% for sure. Um, and especially but it's not below 15% times whatever the percentage for the 40 something yard. Yeah. It just, I just, I, that was one of the things I was like, I don't really? Remember, somehow I don't remember that being the case at all. I thought they, it's, no, I, they I, were I, in I wanna... field goal range before the fourth and 11 that they, that Wentz completed before Blankenship came in and missed the field goal to send it to overtime. They, 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 they didn't run into a fourth and 11 on that drive. They had that, they had that, they had that roughing penalty against their wideout. That was the big. That play. was before the play I'm talking about. Either way, we could we could move on, but I'm just telling you, it was just that particular play surprised me. And I'll look it up while we're speaking. Here. Okay, so um, the Chargers, who we were talking about having taken care of the Browns and given us such a, a, a class on fourth down conversions, go into Baltimore. The Chargers have been lights out this year. <laughs> Rufus was chagrined. He was lamenting to me that our model doesn't love them any more than they do. So we only had them 12th in the league. So they're traveling to Baltimore. They are three-point underdogs at Baltimore. The Ravens, you know, they, they had to really scramble to get past the Colts. What do you think about Baltimore minus three hosting the Chargers, Eric? Are you on the Charger bandwagon yet? Do you love Brandon Staley? He's been talking serious analytics in his press conferences. I mean, I've got a major crush on Staley based on what he's talking about. Uh, it's one of those games where I think the Chargers are a little bit overvalued. I think Baltimore minus three at home. Yeah. I like Baltimore in that game. I like Baltimore giving the three. That's neutral. I, I just think, I think Baltimore woke up at the end of that game against the Colts. Um, I thought the Colts played a really strong defensive game there. I, I like I like Baltimore. If I had to bet that game, I would take Baltimore minus three. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a fancy game. There may not be the fanciest teams. Here's another question of whether you liked it, or whether you believe them or not. Cowboys, do you believe in them? They keep, they've been doing some impressive things. They're running up a good record. They go into New England, who you're probably not impressed with. They are four-point favorites in New England Sunday afternoon. Cowboys pass. Which way are you going to go in that one? I was very impressed with Dallas. I was at the home opener, Dallas at Tampa Bay. Dallas should have won that game. Tampa Bay got lucky to win that game. Dallas, that's Dallas's, I think, only loss, right? They're four and one. So their yeah, only yeah. loss was a last minute field goal kick to, uh, to Tampa Bay. Dallas looks for real. Dak Prescott looks for real. Um, I think except for Tampa Bay, they've got the best receiving core in the NFL. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in New England's defense. I like Dallas in that game. I think right. Dallas is going to go in there and win that game. Well, speaking of Dallas, I'm doing extra therapy this week based on what happened Saturday. Fellas, y'all, I didn't get any love from y'all on Saturday. I got it from some other people, but that was the toughest loss. Texas OU, if you weren't paying attention, a lot of people, a lot of people are saying it was the best version of Texas OU ever. It's only the 117th time it's ever been played. Horns went up early, big, shockingly. They, they scored something like 75-yard pass. On I think the they were up 21 quarter. points, right? Well, they were 28-7 at the end of the first quarter, but 14 nothing, like a minute and a half into the game, 14 nothing, unbelievable. Anyway, I'm going to be working through the scars of that one for a little while. Uh, big weekend. People talk about it being one of the better college football weekends in memory. That's how fun it was. A&M, just to rub it into the Longhorns' wounds, 
upset Alabama, upset of the year so far. They were something like 17-point underdogs going into that game. They got up big, held on. Alabama comes all the way back. You think, well, that's that. They're going to take care of business. They took the lead. They took the lead by seven points. A&M caught them and then passed them at the end with the field goal. Here's my question. Unbelievable game. What frustrates me about that now, we know what's going to happen. Here's my prediction. We don't know. My prediction. Alabama is going to run the table, get into the SEC championship game, going to beat Georgia. Now two teams from the SEC are going to go. And now, so in some sense, it's the best possible world for the SEC. This is exactly what they needed to happen. Now what's going to happen is, whether it's the Big 12, the Big 10, maybe, maybe the ACC this year is not going to get anybody. I mean, I, maybe, they're, not, maybe they're, they're the ones that ACC, are left out. ACC's out. There's not going to happen. ACC's out. So two SEC, one Big 12, one Big 10. No Cincinnati, that's it. No Pac-12, that's it. Well, don't, you can't run off the Pac-12 yet. Um, and you can't run off Cincy yet. And Eric, come on, man. You can't just give Alabama a pass through Georgia in the SEC title game, really? I mean, that's no better than 50-50, and most people would make them a dog right now. Most no, I would make them a dog, too. I'm just saying, I, I just know this is what's going to happen because it's the last thing oh, I Eric, want to happen. That's because every year, this time of year, you start, you're like, okay, tell me how I can get a group of five team in. Yes. My fantasy. This was the worst thing. Fantasy is. I wanted Alabama to route everybody, and then it would be clear that they'd be in, and then they let, let's let in a team that's undefeated that deserves to be in there. Well, I would argue that you've actually got You've got this wrong. You've, you've got too pessimistic of you because that loss ultimately is your friend because Georgia is so good this year, they might actually be able to beat Alabama in the SEC title game. And then you've got an interesting question. I don't think it's obvious. It would be controversial, but you've got a two-loss Alabama. No that way. Some, that some people are going to want to put in there. No. And, the, and Eric, the power models, the power rankings are going to have them at the very top next to Georgia. And they're going to say, really, you're going to, they're going to, people are going to say things like this. And by people, I mean me. Well, you know, if Alabama played Cincinnati on a neutral field, we'd make Alabama right now today a nine-point favorite. And that's probably not going to be any different come early December. And by the way, I take Alabama minus nine against Cincinnati all day long. <laughs> exactly. So I'm not, I mean, I want the committee to take Cincinnati in that situation. And if I had to bet, I would bet they would. But it's going to be a debate. It's going to be interesting. This is all if Alabama runs the table and loses to Georgia in the SEC final after Georgia ran the table, or maybe they drop a surprising one somewhere and they get in with the SEC title. But what I'm saying is I think if you are pulling for Cincy, and that's a good team to pull for, then the A&M win Saturday night was a good thing because it might mean Alabama doesn't make the playoff, which would be amazing. I was also quite upset because I think if they if if our quarterback Clifford hadn't gotten injured in the second quarter, I Penn State was going to win that game against Iowa. They looked so good, and then their starting quarterback got injured, and they couldn't then move the ball. That was a uh, you know Iowa won. You know they might they're on the track to make it. But all I'm commenting on is as a you know spouse of a Penn Stater and someone that's a fan of the team, I I thought this was looking like Penn State's year. They looked great against Iowa until their quarterback got injured. Yeah, you hate to see it go down that way. I, I I was still laid out flat, barely breathing for the three hours after the Texas game, so I wasn't being able to pay attention. But I heard that. I understand that. Iowa seems much more legitimate than when they were running through undefeated a couple of years ago. But they still have to go through other teams in particular. They're going to, even if they come out of the East, even if they come out of the West, Ohio State, and this is one piece of news I want to share with you guys. 
we have Ohio State sneaking way back up our rankings. We have them almost up to Alabama. We have Georgia at the top at plus 34. I forget, Ohio State has one loss. One loss to Oregon. And this has happened with Ohio State before. Early season loss. People forget about them. And then they come roaring back, and they're there at the end of the year. They win the Big Ten. They get in the playoff, and they've got their game. Are they playing Michigan during the regular season? They always play Michigan. Last game, last game of the year. All right. Well, the if they beat if they beat an under if Michigan's undefeated at the time, if they beat an undefeated Michigan and then defeat win the Big Ten championship game, I don't see how Ohio State's not in. They're in. I, they're going to be in if they go through that for sure. But the Big Ten is fascinating. They've got you got it. You know, I, I, I'm with you on Penn State, but even Michigan State. Michigan State is undefeated. The surprise of the year. And both they when they they get to play Michigan, they get to play Ohio State. They're going to have a lot to say about what happens. We've got one big game. We got Georgia, Kentucky. We're calling it a big game because Kentucky's undefeated, but you know, we'll find out. We'll find out whether Kentucky's. Adi, I just want to ask a quick question. Number one's playing number 11. What's the spread in college football? Yeah. Oh, it's probably about seven or eight points, maybe 24. Points. Let's 24. there we go. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm miscalibrated. <laughs> we have, we have Kentucky 31. So that gives you some sense, but it is a surprisingly large spread for the highest rated pairing of the weekend. Fellas, that has been two quarters, two quarters, one half the show. We still have two quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3 now, open lines, open topics. We've been talking college football. I didn't get enough there, guys. You squeezed me into like six minutes, man. We need to do like a whole two hours catching up midseason college football. But we'll save that. I don't know. Texas loses this weekend against Oklahoma State. I might, I might hang it up. I'm going to hang up the college football for the 2021 season. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We've got some other sports. I understand they're playing baseball. I understand there are some interesting baseball goings on. I want to hear a little bit from you on that. By the way, our friend Namita is she got a little team she got a little hockey team out there in the northwest a new one we're recording this on tuesday afternoon they're opening tonight they're opening against las vegas i think the game is in las vegas but the seattle kraken are out of the box an expansion team and we're excited about them this is a team that hired analysts before they hired a coach that's a team that takes it seriously good fun get on the kraken bandwagon it leaves the station this evening if you're listening on Wednesday or Thursday, uh, you know, it's out of the, it's out of the station guys. Talk to me about baseball. I've been paying some attention. As you know, I went to the giants game late when they were trying to hold out the Dodgers. It was good fun. Amazed by the stadium. Y'all have had some heartbreak. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the Yankees. They, they didn't make it out of the wild card, but they made it to the wild card. That was so much fun. It was so much fun there for a little while. Adi. Well, you know, we, we recorded last week's show before the the uh the game but it was it was released after the game so it's sort of weird to have this conversation but we can look back at some of the things we said and reflect on it i think that's always a good idea um yes. and yes. that the the yanks were favored because of cole garrett cole he didn't yeah. pitch well um yeah. but that leads me to wonder whether that was forecastable um he had he had not pitched well in his previous you know five starts approximately right. since coming since coming back from a pulled hamstring, one argues that we should have seen that in the data. One of the one of you the mean from the pulled uh, sticky substance? 
Uh, well, no, no, he's been better. That was early that, in the season. That was early, early in the season. season. He seems right. to have recovered his form, even though he didn't get to use the sticky stuff. He's a great pitcher. The question is, and this leads to me to the general question is, is momentum in sports something that we should take seriously? We've argued about this forever. Eric is very much in the momentum camp. If I were a momentum candidate, if, if you were to ask me where in, in sports is momentum obvious, it's in the it's in the week to week performance of a pitcher. They are. Okay, hold on. I have a new theory. I have a new theory, brand new on the spot. It works at the individual level more than it works at the team level. And uh, it works more on a, like a week to week periodicity than um, a moment to moment. I have to say that because individ- the hot hand is, is individual level. But the reason I say that Adi is because of golf. Mm-hmm. Golf is one place where cyclicality matters a lot. We know it. And I like your claim that it probably matters with pitchers. And in general, we believe this is something that's underappreciated in individual sports, also in marketing, Eric's domain, that the within individual variance, we tend to type individuals, put them into categories and expect everybody within the category to perform the same. And we expect the mean performance out of everybody every time out. And instead we get really a lot of variation within a person and we just don't appreciate that enough. So if you're talking about handicapping it, what we could have said about Cole, Garrett Cole's outings, like, okay, maybe he's a great pitcher. You got two considerations, Adi. One is maybe there's a down cycle right now, but also what's the probability he has a bad outing? We throw him out there and this happens in baseball postseason all the time. I feel like we have this Yankees mm-hmm. conversation every other year. You think you've got the guy that with this guy, it's a sure thing. And there ain't no sure thing. I mean, no, for a while, Mariana Riviera was a sure thing, great, and then he yeah. wasn't a sure thing. Well, a great pitcher, if you look back at the great pitchers, they are able to consistently be great. And and a lot of the reasons why a great pitcher is not always great potentially could be injury, I and mean, that, that could be an issue. There's a lot of attempt to sort of continue to play, even though you're at your top, you're not at your top form. Um, so when we were hoping Cole would have a great performance, he clearly did not, but it matched the performance he'd been having in the previous, you know, three, four, five starts. And therefore, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised. Um, I remember a conversation we had with the Olympics, with the, st- with the swimming coaches, and they were talking about a great reason why the United States has always been successful in swimming is that they held their trials so close to the Olympics in the sense that they found the players who were hot or, or ready or, or peaked or whatever you want to call it. And they selected them and they were continued to be that hot, ready peak at a few months, a month later or so during the Olympics. And they would clean up other teams, followed that strategy in particular. And maybe that maybe we go over look at it. And I said, did not do as well as they had done in the past. So the argument here so is that. Cole, yeah, I, I, there's something a little more structural with the swimming training, because they were literally saying about the catch them on the same taper. So, yeah. They, they would build to the peak performance as these Olympic athletes do. And then if you hold the, pre, if you hold the trials in March, they have mm-hmm. to like taper down and then build up again for the Olympics in the summer. So I guess there's difference in performance across peak. It's a mechanism is what you're saying. That's a yeah, real there's something thing. structural there. It's not more. One would argue um, in, in swimming, there's tapering and in, in a lot of Olympic sports is tapering. How much of that idea carries forth in professional uh, games like football, baseball, basketball, hockey. Nobody like thinks the, about the that pitchers. Way. The pitchers in their four or five day cycle follow something similar. And that would be a wonderful uh, research problem. Or it could tapering towards the playoff, particularly a team that is 
done well and has some time to prepare. Oh, you want to taper across the season as opposed to presumably there's a taper with each start. Well, that's a lot of recovery um, because they get blown out and the, and the pitcher's, pitcher really yeah. needs to rest. Um, so just so I just wanted to just the Yankees lost. A lot of that had to do with Cole Hamill, not Cole Hamill, Garrett, Garrett Cole. Cole. Yeah, hold on, uh, not, hold, on, not hold, on, hold on real quickly on your training point, because I'm wondering some teams must do that. If a team, something like the Giants and Dodgers couldn't afford to do anything different with their pitchers this year because they're in this tight race. In fact, the AL, my God, y'all couldn't do anything. But in some seasons, people are sitting there at the top and they can kind of presumably do do this. They would taper in the truest sense. They would work their pitchers at a lower rate if they thought that would help their postseason performance. I mean, maybe, maybe you can take Tampa that. They have the ability to do it and they just got beaten by the Red Sox in four. Yeah. I mean, look in football, sometimes there's a debate on whether you should rest your guys in week 17, if you're already set for the playoffs, because some coaches think that actually slows them down. Like you don't want to break the mm-hmm. pattern. Yeah, I think what, what you're also talking, what you also mentioned, Kate, I think it's an interesting idea. You know, we study in marketing the difference between, you know, for years we've talked about cross-person heterogeneity. So we fit like latent class models. There's these latent groups of people that behave differently. And now, of course, it turns out that's a special case of what's called, the, which Adi knows well because he's advised many dissertations on this hidden Markov model, which is each individual might go through a hot and cold state. And the thing that you just pointed out is, this is why you need lots of data to fit these models. Here's two possibilities for Garrett Cole. He was in the cold state. He performed consistent with it. Or he performed. He was in the hot state, and he performed poorly. And so both of those lead to the poor outcome, which is why you need lots and lots of data to fit these models. But I'm agreeing with you. I agree with Adi. Whether you want to call it momentum, whether you want to call it a, a switch, a Markov switching model, he's, he's switched three-quarters through the season from the hot state to the cold state. I absolutely believe that. And I had no faith in Garrett Cole, given the way he'd been pitching. Why would he have five or six crucial starts at the end of the season where they needed him to win? And all of a sudden, oh, magically, it's the one-game playoff. Every one of his starts was crucial the last 25 games of the season. Didn't pitch well then either. So interesting, because you really have to have a model in mind then, because you could say just say base rates. Base rates say, you know, he's our one. I do. I have two base rates, the good Garrett Cole and the bad one. (laughs) And he switched between, you know, this is I I don't have to tell Adi about this. But I'm getting it. But okay. you know, I predict it. You I want to give, it. Hey, I'm going to give you all one more minute on the Yankees. I want to do it because there's two important observations from a statistics side that were interesting. One was that it came up in the Sabermetrics Conference, the enormous gap between a DH who doesn't, who doesn't play the field, and an individual who does, who does both a DH and also plays in the field. And there's a 50-point WOBA gap or enormous difference between when a player plays the field and when they don't and they just bat. They're much better when they play the field. And Stanton showed that immensely. And he's shown that ever since they put him out in the outfield. He's just a better hitter. And he was the only one who owned the Red Sox with just three ridiculously hard hits. What's Um, the explanation for that? uh, I don't know. And anyone who tells you they do know is storytelling. So let's just leave it at that. Um, And one of the reasons one of the reasons I ask is because there was a little bit of a discussion at the World Cup when England Held their right, brought in out. two players right in the last couple minutes, and both of them missed the PKs. Yeah. Sterling and I forget who the second one was. They, yeah, 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 yeah. And there was some discussion, like maybe they needed to be warmed up, and that could be connected to a DH hitting better at the plate if he actually plays in the field. That's interesting. Right. And the other thing that was, that was fascinating about it is that uh, Aaron Boone reported that he had them all lined up. Now, what does that mean? He had the con- series of relievers that he was going to bring in and in what order and how long they were going to pitch decided before the game which means he didn't use a dynamic strategy. 
meaning that when a, a particular pitcher who predicted really well, they, it didn't matter what you did or didn't do. This is what he was doing. And I'm not sure that's a good strategy. No, and, it's never a good strategy in life. you got to have robust decisions. Well, as, as Cade, just, we just talked about, maybe you find out after three innings he's in the hot state. Uh, you got you get tw- yep. nine batters and 50 pitchers that just shows it's the good Garrett Cole on that day. Keep yeah. it going, baby. What are you this doing? Is, this is a, this is the product of being overconfident. It's what I would claim. You've got a decision that's based on a very precise prediction about a future state. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible way to make decisions. Your strategy should be robust to the uncertainty that is inherent. And yet we don't want to acknowledge. So it's a really interesting general decision problem. Let's talk about current teams in the baseball playoffs. Well, let's talk about the fascinating play. You know, I'm 54 years old in a play I've never seen before in baseball. Which it might was have in turned the, the whole series. It might have turned yep. the series. It, it, this was in the Rays-Red Sox game. It was in game three. Um, and the score was tied at the time. There was a man on first. It was I think the 13th it was, inning, man. It was yeah, it was the 13th tied. inning. It was, it was yeah, right. It was the 13th inning. And um, Kermeyer on the Rays hits a ball that hits the top of the wall in Fenway, the right field, which is a low wall. It bounces then on the ground in, in the field of play, hits the player who's obviously in the field of play, and then bounces over the fence. And that's ruled a ground rule double. Now, the problem with that is that the runner on first could have walked home. Um, matter of fact, he wouldn't even have to run. He was already basically at home plate by the time. I mean, he was going to score. But apparently there's a rule in baseball that if the ball goes in the field of play and is knocked out of the field of play, it's a double. I would have thought the second part of that sentence would have been, and it's up to the umpire's discretion as to what happens to runners on base, but it's actually not. It's only a two-base advance. And that's the rule was applied properly. It's clear. Eric, are there parts of the rule book that do say things like it's up to the umpire's discretion? There are. There are many places. As a matter of fact, there are many places in the rule book where, let's say, um, you know, maybe if it's fan interference or if it's, um, you know, there are many places where the umpire decides what base the player goes to. This is just not one of them. And by the way, if you ask anybody watching the game, including every umpire that's ever umped a game, that guy was scoring from first. Yeah, for sure. Well, I love your solution because giving discretion there would be sufficient to get it right. And I, I think it's interesting that you named fan interference because I've wondered, you remember the famous fan interference at Wrigley Field before the Cubs, I forget the situation. Was it the, was it the NLCS or was yes. it the actual World Series? NLCS. So the, the fan interference out there Hartman. down the third baseline. Yeah. I'm right. not sure. Hold on. Hold on a second. Was that, was the, it's, it doesn't, it's not the same as if the fan reaches into the field of play, it's fan interference. If they block the player from making a catch when it's in the stands, it's not fan interference. Yeah. This wasn't fan interference. This was in dumb. the stands. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just naming it because yeah. the Jeffrey like- Mayer play was fan interference. That's right. That wasn't called. That was mm-hmm. the Jeter famous home run. But I'm naming this one because it feels psychologically, I mean, we always want to kind of short the momentum story. But in this case, man, that was a blow to the Rays. And it was, it's a blow that you could imagine made a difference in the game. And losing that game in that way could make a difference in the series. It felt that way with the Cubs on that occasion. It felt like the entire stadium, because that one was actually happened to the home team. And Wrigley just, all the air went out of the stadium. And they lost the game, they lost the series. And it feels like the Rays might have the same kind of impact. I think, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, look, in a five-game series, it doesn't take a lot to say, 
boy, you'd really like to uh, be up two to one. And hey, so, what do, you, what, what do you think about a five game series? We talk about tournament design all the time, and this baseball structure is so interesting because it's this ridiculous one game wild card, and then a five game division, and then a seven game um, championship. And I'm curious what y'all think about that. Y'all are the baseball guys. Well, it's left a, a, in a large degree. It's measured by you know the time. I mean, you really can't play baseball in November. It's just too cold. And, and and play fewer and, regular season games then. my god you've got a few of those to kick around yeah well those are what makes money because it's multiplied by every team so uh, real and they actually have tried to push it that that, that back so that the playoffs start much earlier as early as possible but i think starting on october 5th with the wild card games is too late um well, so, and, but, but okay so that's a very practical consideration can we set aside the practical and talk about what you think it means for the sport because contrast it with the nba who if i believe Memory serves. They used to have some five game series. Now they, they play did. Seven. They got rid of it. They, they got rid so of it. many. They have so many more series games than they need. They don't need all those seven game series. It's completely absurd. So I kind of find the five games refreshing in a way. But we're talking about different sports. Baseball, you need more games to figure out the true better team. Now maybe there's not a substitute difference between a seven and five game series for a baseball as chancy. Why as don't we just do it this way? Why don't we make the wild card round best of three? Why don't we make the next round best of five, the ALCS or NLCS best of seven, and then the world series. Let's go three, five, seven, seven. Yeah. I, I, I like, I mean, so all you're doing there is adding wild card games. Um, I'm adding wild yeah, card games. I'm not going to complain about the five whenever I hate all the sevens in basketball, even though I acknowledge it's different with baseball. I, I like it. I think five's kind of refreshing. It, it advances some unexpected things. So looking around the league real quick, what, what other series have your attention? Well, Any, I think are y'all on boycott? Have y'all boycotted baseball since? since no, no, the- no, no. I think I was watching the Rays pretty carefully. I think as we're taping the show, well, Houston is now up. Houston's about to eliminate the White Sox. And so Houston, it's going to be Boston against the, uh, the Red Sox against the Astros. As Adi and I said, before we went on the air, can please both teams lose? That'd be good if they could play each other and both lose. But one of those teams will be in the World Series. You know, right now, it's obviously by a razor-thin margin. It's they're up 2-1. The 107-win Giants look like they may beat the 106-win Dodgers. They're up 2-1. We'll see what happens. But, you know, one of those teams is going to lose. And, you know, those are probably the two best teams in baseball. Do you have a rooting interest in that series? I do. I I. I I'm rooting for the Giants. I, oh, I thought you yeah. were saying your, your kids out in L.A. I thought you might have some L.A. preferences. Why, why the Giants? No, I, I always root for the team that was forecast to win 60-something games and won, or 70-something and won 107. I'm always rooting for that. So it's the, it's the 2021 Giants. It's not the franchise in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the 2021 Giants. I'll be happy to root against them every other year. <laughs> well, don't forget that their their GM out there is uh, behaviorally conscious, like literally Berkeley Econ PhD. His advisor is a longtime friend of mine, and it's just amazing that we have that kind of guy running a professional sports team. And also, isn't some- he? A, isn't a Wharton alum the president, Bill Schlau? Bill Schlau. He's a he's a president of uh, not of media, or he's not on the field operations. Okay, but he's the president of the Giants. So a Wharton alum is at the Giants too. So I'll root for it for Bill Schlau. There you go. Good reasons. Um, all right, we're just down to the last couple of minutes. What other we've got? We've got the crack, and I mentioned that NHL kicking off. We've got NBA coming up. It's about to be basketball season, fellas. Um, anything interesting? I saw the over under totals came out. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that caught my eye is that um, you know they have the Nets at the highest at fifty six and a half. 
I don't know. If that's a healthy Nets team, they're winning a lot more than 56 and a half games. And it might actually matter because they probably do want home court against the Bucks. And so I, I think if the, the one thing that struck me is, and of course you have to integrate over injuries. Maybe Kyra Irving never gets vaccinated. Therefore, they just came out today saying he can't practice. He can't play until he gets vaccinated. You know, maybe that is a good number integrating over the distribution of there are 53 win team if he plays and doesn't play in a 59 win 60 win team if he does halfway in between 56 and a half. So what is happening in that Irving situation? Is he budged? Is there word? Is there conversation? Do we know? I mean, is he really he hasn't budged as of today. As of today, he says he's not getting vaccinated. So, you know, and then a play this season uh, at the moment, he's not authorized to play. He can't play. As of today, they may change it. We believe his convictions are strong enough that he's going to sacrifice the season for this. I mean, I don't know. He can't, right. He can't play, as Matt's saying, he can't play home games. He can't practice at home. Could there be other cities where he's allowed to practice and play? Maybe. And then he traded to the Rockets. He'd be a hero. He'd be a hero down here in Texas for his position. Um, What about... What about anybody in the West? Are we interested in the West this year? Are we going to blow them off? Is this, what, what, what's going on out there? I'm not that excited about any of the Western teams this year. You could say the Lakers, now they got their big three again. I'm not that excited. I mean, LeBron, AD, Russell Westbrook, maybe that'll work out. And they got Dwight Howard back. They got a lot of players there. Rajon hey, Rondo back. So how much start- you these totals? If you look at the totals, I mean, they're just a few games behind the the Nets. They're just a few games behind the Bucks. So I guess the market still thinks that they're well. They're they're the favorites. They're the co-favorites with the Jazz. They, the Jazz and the Lakers have fifty-two and a half projected wins. The Suns yeah. fifty-one and a half. The West is wide open. There's a lot of teams. Lot of teams. All right. So last story, Eric. You got something to say about the golf world? It's good. It's kind of fallow season in golf. So what do you got? Well, the one thing I noticed was that Phil Mickelson, who's 51, so he, you know, first of all, he just won the PGA this year. Um, He's been playing senior events. He's played four of them, and he's won three. And I started to wonder, that's actually still impressive. Say, well, it's senior guys. Well, no, there's a bunch of guys in their early 50s. I understand he was better than them when they were all in their prime. But to still, to win, I understand it's small samples, but he's won three out of four events. We got to give him props for doing that. And I think it's, it's amazing at how well he's played in these senior events. I think it's a great point, Eric. You're, you're opening my eyes to it. I see it and I think, well, of course, you know, we've got this great player that rolls into seniors and they start mowing down these tournaments. But it's still one guy in a field of whatever, what the Masters fields. Are they the same size as the, the over 100 like they are in the – yeah, they're roughly 100 players, So, and he's still won three or four of them, and I think that's still impressive. Now, of course, the big advantage he has is he's probably hitting it 40 or 50 yards farther, so this gets back to the analytics of golf we've talked about. Phil Mickelson may be hitting seven irons to greens, and some other guys hitting a four or five iron. And, you know, you hit enough shots in a golf tournament, I'll take the guy hitting the seven iron to the guy hitting the five iron all day long. So it's interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should pay more attention to these masters, these masters tournaments as these, as the big guys roll in there. It could be kind of fun. Especially right, as, guys. especially as time goes on and these guys can hit it farther and farther. Right, right, right. All right. That's been three quarters of Wharton money, but we still have a quarter to go. I have interview coming up with Sean Clement on military analytics and a little bit of football analytics. Come back. And- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. The fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. And very happy this quarter to 
welcome Sean Clement. Sean, some of you may know him as Sean from Seabeck. He's an active Twitterer and a football analyst, but he's also a longtime data scientist with the U.S. Army and uh, a very long career with the U.S. Army. And we brought him on to talk with us about football analytics, but also military analytics. It's one of the interesting corners of the world that is making greater use of data. And we thought Sean would be an interesting person to talk to since he kind of bridges both those domains. Sean is currently senior data scientist with the U.S. Army. And again, you can see him, follow him, read him at Sean from Seabeck on Twitter. Sean, good afternoon. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Kate. I appreciate uh, your time and being on the program. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Listen, um, let's hear a little bit about where you're, where you're coming from. What, 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 what happened in your life before you got to the military? And then you've got this super interesting military career. And we want to hear about the role that data has played there. And maybe now how you're thinking about it, even you know, now that you've worked some in, in the NFL as well, how do you think about Moneyball in the military? Because I know you've been thinking about Moneyball in the military for a while, but how did this all get going? How did you end up at West Point? What was your life like before West Point? How did you make the decision to go to West Point? Well, so the decision to go to West Point was pretty easy uh, because I was a poor kid from CVAC and I got offered free college. Uh, so that makes, uh, that makes for an easy decision. So, uh, you know, I started out enlisted. Um, and I was uh, 15 Romeo. So what that means is I was going through training to be an Apache helicopter repairer. And while I was doing that, um, you know, I, I got asked if I wanted to go to West Point. And you know, I, I figured, well, why the heck not? I'll throw in an application. The worst they can do is tell me no. And to my, uh, to my surprise, they said yes. And so I was just like, well, I, I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, especially if you were going to do military anyway, you might as well do it that way, right? Right. Well, you know, the, the pay for second lieutenant is a heck of a lot better than uh, for private first class. Uh, right. So for all of you on the fence about joining the dark side of going into the officer corps, uh, I can tell you your wallet will thank you if no one else does. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so uh, so I hopped on, you know, I hopped over to West Point and, and I, I got, did my undergrad uh, there, I graduated in 2009, and that was an operations research. And so that was really my first, uh, my first flavor of data science before it was really even called data science, because operations research encompasses uh, uh, all sorts of fields uh, within the military. So sure. you, know, you have people who are more in the, uh, the systems engineering type of uh, fields, looking at uh, systems-based approaches. Uh, you have people who are more um, you know, applied mathematicians working on optimization type problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you have folks who f- focus more on statistics. Um, and, and so I, you know, did some, uh, did, did some courses there at West Point and, and liked what I was studying. And I really liked the applied nature of it. What, what got me to operations research instead of going into a pure math background is, uh, you know, I wanted to solve problems that were, were keeping us from, you know, our full capability, uh, on the military side. And this is, you know, back while I was at the Academy. Um, after I graduated from West Point, uh, I became an aviator. So I flew UH 60 Blackhawks. I did that mostly over in Germany and, uh, did a short stint over there in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to a point in my career where, uh, you know, I was, I was done with my company command and I had, I had honestly considered getting out of the army. I'd been in it about eight years at this point. Uh, the war was winding down. And, uh, you know, I just thought, um, 
uh, you know, I was like, well, geez, if I'm not going to keep flying, do I want to stay in or, you know, do I want to go get out and go to grad school? And, um, as, as luck would have it, you know, the, the army has an operations research functional area. Let me ask you a question real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Is is there a little bit of a, um, is there a little bit of a forced rotation because they're training new helicopter pilots all the time and they need, they need to, right. They need to have, they need to have places to put people. So is it kind of the case that you're, you've got an expected kind of length of duty to do in that vocation, and then you're kind of expected to move on and do something else because you need to make room for the next people below you? Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's that's kind of fair. Um, you know, and it, for Army aviators, there's kind of two broad classes of aviators, too. You, you know, you have uh, commissioned officers, and, and that's what I was. And, you know, you fly, but you also do other jobs. So you're doing uh, a job at, you know, battalion or brigade staff, or you're leading the company and all of that. And then you have warrant officers and warrant officers in the army um, and the different branch or differentials of service do this differently. Just keep that in mind. But in the army, warrant officers are, are technical experts. So when you have maintenance test pilots, instructor pilots, uh, safety officers, those sort of folks who have much, much more flying time, they are predominantly from the warrant officer corps. Okay. Okay. Um, so it, so especially if, if you're on the commissioned officer side, uh, you will get limited flight time as compared to warrant officers. Cause you're expected to, you know, lead formations of troops or, uh, do a staff job or, or something like that. So when I, when I came out of command and I was no longer in charge of my company, um, I was facing one of those points in my career where I would be getting a little or no flight time because of the, you know, the types of jobs I was going to be taking. Yeah, right. And, uh, and at that point, my military contract was up. I could I could leave if I if I wanted to, um, and so you know when you have the option, you kind of balance your uh, balance your options at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm curious as a as a platoon leader there, was there use of analytics? I, I kind of and this might have been you you know you studied operations research as an undergrad, but that doesn't mean you were it doesn't necessarily mean you're interested in using them and how you run your platoon. So you're in charge of four helicopters and 20 guys and some, some math geek comes up to you and says, Hey, Sean, I can tell you how to run your platoon more effectively. I've got this little algorithm. How would you, how would you have felt about that? Uh, You know, for, for some stuff, you know, for some stuff we did try and use uh, some of the lessons learned uh, from, from operations research. So uh, for, for flight scheduling, for training, for instance, uh, you know, it can be, you can save you a lot of effort if, if you've got a program that just says like, Hey, you have this many pilots, they need to fly this minimum number of hours. You got to squeeze your staff guys in, you know, these are the pilots in command that you have available. And then it's a scheduling problem. Okay. Okay. Uh, So, so you can, you can do some stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I know, uh, I know some folks who have gone through, uh, through that kind of same pipeline that I did, who, who have used operations research, you know, for their, for their smaller units. Uh, usually the problem uh, in that type of situation is, is a, is a lack of data to work with. Right. Um, and so that can be a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Small sample problem. What, what would you, how would you characterize the culture I mean, I'm sure it's something that you've run into in the National Football League is that the culture isn't necessarily open to analytics, some places more than others. But it turns out that organizational culture is a huge factor in whether people are going to adopt this new you know, approach. And so I'm curious, the military, I mean, you know, very mathy, the, the operations research might have been the most popular major for all I know at West Point, because it's that kind of engineering oriented place. It, 
it what, was it was, was not. Your... There were very few of us. <laughs> oh, is that right? All right. Well, what what um, what, how would you characterize the culture and interest in analytics and, and support of decision making, especially, you know, as you as you gain seniority and these higher level officers have maybe been making their decisions in a certain way. And now you've got new technology and you've got kids with new algorithms. And is there, do you run into the same kind of culture battles in the military as you've seen take place in sports? Well, I think with, with any, uh, you know, with any set of, of leaders, you're, you know, you're going to have people who are more resistant than others. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story uh, back in 2015, uh, I got selected to go to Fort Leavenworth and talk to the chief of staff of the army. And I was a captain at the time. I was still in company command. Um, and uh, General Ordi Erno had put out this call that he wanted, uh, he wanted units to nominate captains to get sent to Fort Leavenworth to come together and discuss some of the problems facing the army. Uh, and, and by problems, I just mean, you know, things that need to be solved, not like yeah. not existential crises. <laughs> Every organization has its problems, Sean. Absolutely. Right, right exactly. Um, and, and so, you know, we all, we all flew there and we discussed for, for, uh, quite a bit of time in our small groups, you know, how do we get after these, these challenges that the army has to solve? Um, and that was really eye opening because at the end of that process, you know, we had all of these captains sitting in a, in a room around a, you know, a big U shaped table and we're briefing the chief, uh, the chief of staff of the army who's like the four star in charge of the entire army, uh, okay. and, you know, I'm just a company commander at this point. This is my bosses, 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 you know, several yeah, layers right, above me. Right, right. Um, but General Ordierno, uh, who unfortunately uh, passed away very recently, um, okay. was was incredibly open to not only data, but but input from from his subordinates. Um, and, and I think that spoke a lot, not only to, to his character, but you know, it's, it's not an unusual for really highly successful, uh, high ranking military officers to, to know that, look, I can't know everything, you know, I need input from, from my subordinates. And, and especially I need to consider viewpoints that I hadn't considered before. And, and, you know, 2015 and 2016 data science was, was just kind of starting to really make some waves in the public sphere. And, uh, and so when, when I pitched to him, uh, the, you know, the idea that, I wanted to talk to him about, which was uh, Moneyball for the Army. I, that, you know, I think you can actually Google uh, uh, some Army news clips about that that okay. presentation. Okay. Um, he was really open to it, uh, and uh, but I learned a lot of valuable lessons in that in that interaction too. Because the very first thing he said to me when we started talking about Moneyball for the Army, you know, he turned to me and and said, "There isn't going to be a math test, right, Captain Clement?" And I was like, "No, sir. You know, I'm not going to." not going to speak numbers at you. And so that taught me pretty right away. It's like, okay, if you want to have a high impact with these high level decision makers, you need to be comfortable talking about, you know, possibly very complex abstract topics uh, at a level where you're not talking down to somebody, certainly, but, but still in a way where, uh, you know, somebody who hasn't taken a math class in 30 years can understand what the heck you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's hard about that is you often, you know, you're, you're, you're proud of what you know, and you kind of want to show what you know. And, and, and there is a, a credibility building process that goes on. And so you've got to do that, but you've got to do that in a way that's not off-putting and in a foreign language. And that's a, that's a real, that's a real trick. Well, listen, even calling it Moneyball for the Army, you're speaking a language that is more familiar, right? And we heard this, I mean, I can't, it's phenomenal to me that you have such a presentation, Sean, because 
the guys that we talked to just a couple of weeks ago working on the wildfires up in the Northwest, and we talked to them last year as well, they, they started using the Moneyball language in order to make more progress with the people they were trying to convince to use their models. And they literally have a paper called Moneyball for Wildfire, Moneyball for Fire. So to, to what extent was, was that helpful to name it Moneyball as opposed to evidence-based decision-making or whatever? Was, did Moneyball have the cachet inside the military that, that was useful to you? You know, I, I think, I think it did. Um, uh, when, when we start talking about uh, quantitative stuff, you know, the, the class of people who loves numbers and stuff, there's, there tends to be a little bit of this turning up our noses at things like, you know, money ball for, for whatever. Um, but if you can tie, if you can tie what you're talking about in, and Hold on, let me, let me make sure I understand that, Sean, you, you, is it because it's, become too popular or uh, yeah i think so I, you know i think, I think among i think uh, among the more nerdy circles of uh of you know this kind of analytics analytics crowd there's there's a there's a bit of a uh you know a bit of a turning up noses that when you know when somebody's entrance like oh money ball for whatever but you know oh, by, is that, by, like, that was like that was my father's analytics it's not right. it's a, <laughs> right. that's a studebaker that's the studebaker of analytics is that kind of the yeah, but being being able to to reference something within pop culture that uh, that was tied to a compelling story where you know you, you had the the A's that were were just incredible underdogs and really overachieved and did it in a novel way and, and that all of that comes back to you know just just trusting some evidence and and a little bit of a leap of faith there by the decision makers and and so I think I think folks can identify with that and we shouldn't underestimate the power of of having identifiable stories that link, you know, our mathematics work to what is really a non-scientific process of decision-making. Um, you know, being a, being a leader of a large organization is very hard. Uh, there's, there's a lot of nuance that, you know, sometimes your analysts aren't aware of, uh, but being able to tell your story in a compelling way is, is probably the most important asset. You know, if you can make a computer vision model, that's, that's great. But if you can't tell a story and get somebody to buy off, then you're just, you know, somebody spouting off on Twitter about how everybody's doing stuff wrong. You got to be convincing. In the convincing, you know, there's, in my experience, it's a lot easier to sit on the sidelines and say, you Hmm. should follow the model than it is to be the person who has to make the decision. And there's, it's just, if there's something, it's easier to advise that it feels obvious than it is to actually make the decision and put it into place. And it's possible that that storytelling deepens the convictions enough to get people over that hump. It needs to be something beyond just intellectual. It needs to move them at some deeper level in order to have the conviction to actually take the risk to trust the model. Can you give us an example of one of the things that you were talking about, the general Odierno? Is that the way? Uh, Yeah, Odierno. Odierno. You were were presenting to the chief of staff of the army as a Mm -hmm. captain, and you're you're trying to persuade him that Moneyball for – for the army should be a thing. What's an example that you were pushing there or one that you've seen since? Uh, so the example I was pushing there, um, cause, cause I, you know, I, I don't think I can talk about any, any recent examples, but the, the one there was, uh, I think at the, at the time the army was bringing in uh, 10,000 recruits per day. Um, and really the pitch was board. right with, you know, I think people, or, or per month, I'm sorry, not per day, uh, 10,000 per month, um, okay. which, which is a bit more reasonable, but still certainly a lot of people. Still a big number, uh, right. 
Right. Um, and, and really my, the, the crux of my pitch was that we need to be gathering as much data on all of our recruits as they come into, as they come into the army as possible so that we can start assessing for long-term trends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then especially uh, for some of our lower ranking personnel, um, you know, that, that we can, we can devise ways to quantitatively measure their performance so that the units can not only know, um, you know, something about the soldier that they may be getting within a, within a transfer. Um, but, but also, you know, we can start doing, going back and doing some meta-analysis on, on those types of ratings, you know, are our raiders looking for the right things and, mm-hmm. and, and such, and such, uh, things such as that. But, um, yeah. And, and, and really the, the whole pitch was like, Hey, you know, we, we have really what we have with 10,000 people per month coming in is a data stream, yeah, but if we're not, right. but if we're not storing it, you know, yeah, if we're not, uh, if we're not assessing it, then, then we don't know what we're missing. Uh, and the, the pitch to the general was less about any specific program and more about the fact that, you know, Hey, when, when we have all of these people and all of these uh, you can think of them as transactions, you know, somebody comes into the army and basically and all of that. Um, please, please don't. <laughs> please right, don't. Well, right. But the, you know, they're, they're, they're events. And so we need to no, have all these events and, yeah. Sean, and so, we yeah, don't know what is, kind of triumphs we will find. I could not possibly agree more. And I think this is a familiar early stage conversation where you're not even getting into any bells and whistles or things that sophisticated. It's just like, keep score. I mean, just, Start keeping, you know, start running numbers. And it, one, of the, one of the challenges is you're not going to know anything for a while. So it's, it's not like you can start collecting data on the 10,000 this month and all of a sudden know something. It's like, no, nah, you're going to have to do it for a couple of years. But if you always put it off, you're always going to be a couple of years away from insight. And so that first conversation is often just like, come on, man, we've got huge data opportunity here. That's great that you, that you saw it that way, Sean. Um, I'm curious. I've, I've been curious for a long time. This is a very different application, and I'm curious if it's ever thought about in this way. You know, we're always doing performance evaluation in football analytics or whatever the sport may be. It's really, I think of it, it often comes down to performance evaluation. You're trying to separate out the individual's contribution to this fundamentally messy group thing that's going on. Like, why does that group thing happen? Who contributes to it? Who hurts it? And I've wondered how good we've been with military history about attributing losses and victories to the right commanders. You know, Mm -hmm. people get these big reputations and you read some of this military history, you know, read a book on, I don't know, like U.S. Grant or something, um, the big biography that came out a couple years ago. And, you Mm -hmm. know, he's going into battle with, he's got these lieutenants out there that are often vital to what happens in the field and a guy that has a couple of good I'm, I'm using the wrong rank i'm sure but a guy that has a couple of good second in commands is got a real advantage and do we properly discount or credit the generals so you know you know what i'm saying i'm just wondering have have people brought the more sophisticated analytics approach to evaluating commanders in the way that we're evaluating quarterbacks or head coaches or wide receivers uh, and that's a really good question um, that I unfortunately don't know the answer to. Uh, I think it would be fascinating, even looking at historical examples, you know, you bring up Grant and, and you could say like, well, you know, how successful would Grant have been if he didn't have Sherman, for example, right? right uh, exactly. uh, you know, can we do a, can we do a with or without you score of, uh, right. 
uh, Tecumseh Sherman and, uh, and see where Grant, you know, yep. where Grant backs up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, talk a little bit. Well, let me just remind everybody who we're talking to. Sean Clement is a senior analyst for the U.S. military. He's also been a consultant into the National Football League, continues to consult with the National Football League. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean from Seabeck. And uh, we're talking a little bit about his his history in the U.S. military. He continues to work there, but he came through selling uh, war- Moneyball for Army program and ideas and continues to work in that capacity. Sean, as you started working with non-military organizations, what did you find most challenging? You start working with a sports team or an NFL team and you try to bring some of these same ideas. What, what, what did you find that to be like? You know, it was, uh, I, in football, I think it can be harder to get your foot in the door to be, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, I, when I was coming when I was, I was really doing football analytics as a way to practice the things I was learning in grad school. Uh, Cause you know, depending on the grad school you go to, uh, it can be a little bit theory heavy. And I was like, well, you know, I want to get back to the applied problems and, and solve yep. this kind of stuff. Um, so let's just say you went out and did like a master's in mathematical computation or something from Stanford, right? This was, this was some serious grad school. Yeah. yeah computational mathematics from Stanford. Uh, thank you to all my classmates who helped drag me across the finish line. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, Common experience as a grad student. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, just getting your foot in the door can be really hard because some of these organizations, um, you know, have been doing things a certain way for a long time. Um, you know, you have people who, uh, have been studying football for, for decades, their entire lives. And, and, you know, if somebody like me comes knocking on the door and say like, Hey, you know, I can, I can help you be better. I can, you know, uh, make you more efficient at, at all these processes, uh, that there's, there's a, there's not like, you know, it's not like the military where there's a hierarchy and like those positions just exist. And so you're kind of forced into those organizations and, and then, you know, you have an opportunity to, to be there on the ground with those people. And, you know, if you're, if you're in front of somebody and you're doing good work constantly, even to an analytics non-believer, let's say you can generate some buy-in, but it's hard to start that process in something like sports. If you can't even get the door get in the door. That's right. right. Sean, let's stay with that for a second. I'm curious, you, you're basically an outsider to the NFL and you're trying to get in the door, do some work with the NFL. So what did you find was helpful there? What do you think others might learn from your experience of crossing that threshold to some extent? So I, I, you know, I think the the big thing is to constantly go out and, and try and just solve problems and questions that interest you. When I was doing a lot of, uh, you know, writing on SB nation sites or, uh, you know, just posting sports analytics threads on Twitter or messing around with the first big data bowl uh, data set. I just wanted to answer some questions that I thought were, were interesting and, and I would write about them. Um, and, and in the context of, of, you know, so what, you know, what could you do with this information? Um, and I think that's really important. You know, there's, there's definitely sometimes where I'll stumble across uh you know, a Twitter thread or an article or something like that with analytics. And I look at the information, I'm like, well, you, but you can't do anything with this. You can't make a decision. So I think if you, if you can, if you can couch your approach in 
you know, this, this is how you use this information. That's really okay. what will separate you from, from somebody just screaming into the ether, so to speak. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that I, you said early on, you said the applications were what interested you. That's why you wanted to do OR instead of just straight math. And so you have an applied orientation and that must serve you well and kind of spinning out the implications. I want to push you a little bit though on why is it important that you do something that's interesting to you? I, I think I can, I think I can try, but I want to hear why you think that's important because you might, you might've flipped it around and said, you know, you want to find something that interests somebody else and, and, and work on that. But you're like, I think you think there's value in working on something that's especially interesting to you, the doer. Why is that? So I, I think when you're first starting out, it's important to cut your teeth on problems you care about. Uh, because there's there's so much data and so many things that you could test out in sports that uh, if you weren't passionate about really digging through all of the uh, all of the sources out there and all of the articles that have been written and you know getting your getting your hands dirty in the code that it can be pretty easy to just kind of you know produce something that's that's not uh, that's not particularly interesting um, and you know I I think people shouldn't try and sell themselves short, you know, get something that you're really passionate about, dig all the way into it and develop, you know, a fully fleshed out thesis, test it out as best you can. And, um, and really demonstrate that you can, you know, you can take this type of uh, projects that you care about, you know, from concept all the way through, uh, all the way through answering a question and giving recommendations for actions on the backside. And if you can do that, then, then I think that sets you apart. I love that combination. You're saying work on something that's interesting to you because it provides all this motivation and energy that's pretty much necessary given the, the infinity of the world that you could dig into and frankly, all the other people that are doing it. You've got to stand out in some way. If you're not really fired up and putting in the time and uh, aren't a little bit obsessive, you're probably not going to stand out, but you're pairing that with an, an applied orientation. You got to take it all the way to the end. You got to talk about the implications. You got to make it relevant. You got to make your passion, whatever your crazy little obsessive is about, you have to right. make it relevant to the decision maker. And I think that's a real nice, a real nice pairing. Sean, we're going to run out of time, but I'm curious as you look around the 2021 NFL landscape, the, I mean, I'm, I'm so, I love the football analytics community. I'm so proud of them. I think what's happened in the last five or six years is mm-hmm. just so cool. And there's so many interesting things going on, both inside teams and outside of teams. What what is something that's especially interesting to you right now? What's a frontier in football analytics that you know you're no longer the guy just trying to get into the NFL? You've got your nice connections, you've got some working relationships, but it still matters what turns you on. So what what right now on the 2021 frontier are you most excited about? Well, you know, I I think the thing that I'm most excited about is there's a real big push in the NFL to democratize uh, analytics a bit, and you know we've seen. Uh, Mike Lopez there at the at the NFL office uh, organizing the big data bowl year after year, and I think that's a great resource for for folks that are interested in NFL analytics. You know, I've I've gotten several messages from from people trying to trying to figure out exactly what the heck they're doing uh, with with that type of data set, and it just gives you a yearly opportunity to get some reps in uh, and and you know get some questions from the NFL on things that that people care about, you know, can we, can we develop a, a algorithm that looks at, you know, do running backs matter this year, they're focusing on special teams, uh, which, you know, often gets ignored. And, and, and so I think that's really neat. And then uh, on, on the other side of things, kind of the unofficial route, um, you know, you had, 
uh, you had the the folks who who put together NFL Scraper, so uh, you know Sam Ventura, Ron Yurko, and and uh, Maxim yeah. Horowitz, and then uh, the the uh, the follow on to that NFL Faster uh, with uh, with Ben Baldwin and uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Case B. I can't remember his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that democratization of analytics is incredibly powerful because you could have the smartest people on the planet working within teams, but there's only so many people and they're only going to have so many hours in the day to test stuff out. And so when you start getting hundreds or thousands of people pouring over the same data sets, yeah. like the, the market will always beat the individual on these type of things, right? Like, you right. know, even if I've got years working on on NGS stuff and, and looking at all of these uh, factors in football, there's going to be somebody out there in the crowd who comes up with something really novel. And I'm going to look at it and go, Hey, that's, that's pretty cool. (laughs) And maybe I don't use it for, for what they designed it for, but I'm like, Hey, you know, if we had, if we applied this to this other thing, we could really, we could really, you know, chop some wood on this thing and, and make something neat. So um, that's what excites me is, is just, it's, it's kind of that, that democratization of data and analysis and, and seeing what people come up with because there's there's some people way the heck smarter than me out there uh producing some cool stuff and i and love there's, reading it there's there's so many folks i mean it's just inevitable that they're gonna they're gonna do some things that even the, the the smartest in the community wouldn't have come up with and that's the beauty of having this open source broad community lots of folks fired up always a new generation of people coming up through it and it's also i mean it's a very yeah. Lopez has helped create this and foster it, but it's it kind of in his interest in, in terms of advancing the teams because it's a great way for teams to advance their knowledge. They, they need to stay kind of porous at the boundaries and adopt some of these ideas and stay very in touch with what's going on because there is this kind of publicly available wisdom evolving. Um, it's been great fun to watch. Listen, it's been fun to watch you as well, Sean. Good luck with the work that you're doing. Appreciate you taking the time to be here with us and talk a little bit about it. Well, I appreciate your time and thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Sean. That's Sean Clement, senior data scientist with the U.S. Army. He's also a consultant into the NFL. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Sean from Seabeck, at Sean from Seabeck. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do it here on SiriusXM every week for the whole team, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, for the boss man, Matty Datz, for the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins couldn't do it without you guys. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back again and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.